Good morning, everyone. This is Jeffy Kennedy. I am here with my first cup of coffee. Mm. Today is Friday, June 21st. Solstice. Happy Solstice. Also, grandson Tobias' birthday. Happy birthday, Baya. He has 11 today. I'm indoors this morning because... <clears throat> cough, cough. Uh, because we're to have very high winds today and we have a fire weather watch, which is always a delight. And the winds are blowing in significant smoke from the fire in Arizona, the Wood Gap fire. Really started to settle in overnight. We could see it coming our way. So my uh, sunrise pictures are definitely smoke tinged. But, you know, we've had such a light fire season so far, we can't be too annoyed. But I closed up the windows while the uh, air was still cool and clean. And just going to stay indoors for the most part today. So, um, I did get a good picture of Jackson against uh, the wall and soaking up the sun. You can enjoy the sun from the indoors <laughs> if you have to. <laughs> uh. So we had a good day yesterday. We um, ended up going to Santa Rosa Lake instead of Conscious, uh, for those of you who know or care. Um, Santa Rosa is a little bit closer and it's um, more accessible. Conscious has a lot of pretty steep slopes. And it's also a little bit barren up that way. And it was supposed to be super hot. And we just decided... Santa, we picked uh, Conscious because it was supposed to be less windy than Santa Rosa. But we decided, eh, we just go to Santa Rosa. Uh, and Santa Rosa you know, was pretty good for a while. By about 1 o'clock, uh, the wind really kicked up. So we just have a very turbulent season this year. So we packed up and came home, and it worked out well for me because I got back in time to go to Yin Yoga. So that was that was lovely. I almost finished spinning in silver with Naomi Novik, or but with <laughs> with Naomi. Naomi and I have been reading it uh, by Naomi Novik. And I have, I've liked this book best of any of hers so far, um, but I'm starting to get tired of it now. I'm on page 403 of 480. And uh, Corrine put up a review of it this morning, and I agree with your review, Corrine. I really love this story, but I do not love this thing that so many fantasy authors do of going off into all these different POVs. And it's not head hopping, but they'll just do a chapter in a new POV kind of when it strikes their fancy. And people are forever telling me, and and sometimes I feel like they're kind of splaining it to me, mansplaining, only it's not always men, that this is perfectly acceptable in fantasy. You know, that... Oh, yeah, you know, fantasy, we have multiple POVs. And I don't care if 
somebody did it and it was acceptable. I don't like it. Um, Corrine commented that she liked Miriam's point of view best and she was the one she really cared about. And I agree. I cared about, you know, Miriam was the primary POV. It's where we started the story. Um, I felt like it was her story overall. I like getting Irina's story. And I thought it was interesting doing this perspectives of the three very different women. Um, Irina, the Duke's daughter, who becomes a Sarina, and then Miriam, the uh, daughter of a Jewish family of moneylenders, and then Wanda, the abused daughter of an incredibly poor family. It was sort of like the three different social strata, and the three women are all very similar. In some ways, they're almost too similar, though, because their voices are very much the same, and it's all first-person point of view. And I know from working on this, on my own stuff, <laughs> that you have to be really careful to, you know, like with um, Orchid Throne and Fiery Citadel, I have two first-person points of view, and it's hers and his. So that makes it a little bit easier because I can go for a more masculine tone on one and a more feminine tone on the other. Although my heroine, Leah, is so cool and rational um, and it's it's hard to go with the standard feminine things to denote her voice, I guess is what I want to say. But I think that they're distinct. I try pretty hard. Uh, I know that's something that not all reviewers pick up. I did see an early review where somebody said they wished that I'd labeled the chapters with who it was so that they would know. And I always feel like, uh, well, I can see that that's helpful, but I also feel like it's... um. That means I didn't do my job well, I think. So having three young women um, with similar personalities, similar mindsets in many ways, all first-person point of view, they do sound a lot of like alike. And I think I would have been fine with that because it makes it interesting. It's kind of like, any of them could have been the other had they been born in the other circumstances, and I liked that about it. <clears throat> but I think she should have stick and stick and oh, she's making up words today. I think she should have stuck to those three. Um, and I I feel like I know that I am a purist about this, and I don't know. I don't think anybody else agrees with me, but you know, I'm a big believer. I talk a lot about the first twenty five percent of a story you know, that you should have all of your stakes set in the first 25%. And then the story cascades from there, builds and then cascades. And so I really don't like it when a POV is introduced after the first 25% of a story. Um, I really don't like it when there's a point of view that's introduced and it's only their one or two or three times. One thing we talk about in writing, it's a it's one of the rare easy answers to give a newbie writer when they say, how do I decide whose point of view to tell a scene from? And it's like, okay, this one there's actually a rule for. The rule of thumb is is that you tell this you tell this uh, from the point of view of the person who has the greatest stake in what happens during the scene. Uh, 
because they're the ones who are, you know, have the most, they have the most at stake. They're the most emotional. It's, it's going to have the greatest conflict and consequences for that person. You're not always going to make that choice. Sometimes there's good reasons to have it from someone else's point of view, but that's a good rule of thumb. What happens with these other POVs is it's sort of like they're introduced anytime the writer wants to tell about something going on where one of their POV characters isn't. So going into Magritte's point of view, Irina's servant woman, and, and Stepan, going into Stepan's point of view where he's like a, a mostly illiterate 10-year-old boy who doesn't understand much of what's going on, I really don't understand why she, why Naomi chose to tell um, an incredibly pivotal climactic scene from Stepan's point of view. I don't think it worked. I mean, here we are talking about a book that I, I have enjoyed and that is, you know, nominated for Hugo and, you know, notable books on you know, notable books of the year lists and all of that. So who am I to say that it didn't work? But, wow, I think that that scene could have had so much more impact if it was told from the point of view of not only someone who has a greater stake in what's going on, but someone who actually understood what was going on. Stepan doesn't understand what's going on. Uh and I, yeah, <laughs> and I didn't care that much about how Stepan felt. You know, really, that scene was about Miriam and Irina and ha and this sort of complex plot they had hatched. I wanted to know how they felt about it. So, so that's my thing. I just feel like you shouldn't move into, and I don't, you know, you can tell me all you want that this is perfectly, perfectly acceptable in fantasy. I still think it's lazy writing to pop into whatever POV is convenient. That that should not be the reason to do it. There. So, you know, I've, I really loved about the first two thirds of this book. And now I've kind of hit the, uh, the willow, evil willow board now moment. Board now. And uh, I, I like what she's done in that what we thought was going to be the the climax, the what that the big plan turns out to be not the actual ending. I like that there's more to come. I think that's an interesting idea because things don't don't always go neatly. Um, but I feel like there were a lot of scenes that took way too long that she, and I know why she's doing it. She's wanting to delve into sort of like the uh, the quiet woman's work kind of thing. But, you know, I, I feel like the point's been made at this point in the story. And we don't need so much of it anymore. The other thing that I find very interesting that I'm turning over, and it's interesting that um, both Naomi Novik and... Mary Robinette Cole had it in their, you know, and, and Mary, they're both nominated for the Hugo in novel, and Mary won the Nebula for hers, but both have a Jewish heroine. And I thought it worked better in Mary Robinette's 
novel because it was um, our world, modern times, or not alternate history, I should say, um, and that there was a lot of stuff about marginalized people in it, civil rights and so forth. And it was interesting having, you know, like how do you hold Shabbat in space? Naomi having this, uh, you know, family and <clears throat> larger community of Jews in her essentially alternate fantasy world where there's like a couple of mentions of Christ, but otherwise no real presence of any other religion. Um, I'm finding it distracting. And, and I, I love what she's wanting to say about the Jewish community and, you know, bringing in some of the fear of that they'll be run out or persecuted. Um, and it puts me a lot in mind of, um, Guy Gabriel Kay's The Lions of al Rasan, where there was the, the Jewish doctor heroine, and it, very similar in some ways, talking about the Jewish quarter of the city. But The Lions of al Rasan uh, is almost not fantasy. It's really um, an, an, an alternate history or an exploration of history. And there are the presence of other religions and other ways of life. Spinning silver, the Judaism feels stuck in there. Um, and I find it as distracting as I would if there was someone practicing Christianity or some sort of Christian religion throughout the book within the absence of anything else. Uh, I just don't, um, I don't think that it really... I don't know. It was an interesting choice, but it feels like an agenda choice and not a story choice. And so that's where I'm coming out on it. And so soon I will have to make my votes for the uh, Hugos. And then I will move on to reading some other things. Oh, I think I mentioned, um, since I'm doing critiques, I read it. I tried to read. <laughs> I started to read. Nettie Okorafor's Binti Night Masquerade, which is nominated for novella, I think, in Hugo's. And I was so lost. It's And it turns out it's the third novella in a trio. And I have been this soldier, right? I write a lot of sequels. <laughs> I was so fucking confused, you guys, by Binti Night Masquerade. I could not... There were so many layers of differentness and and the heroine is not in her right mind, so she doesn't know what's going on, and I didn't know what was going on. And so I thought I I thought this must be a sequel because I, I hadn't read the other ones and I really wasn't paying attention. Uh Green said she didn't even try to read it once she saw it was the third of three. Because she's smarter. Than, she's a savvy reader. She knows to look for these things. So I went and bought the first novella because I thought, well, I just need to get grounded, you know. And so I started reading that. And I, I do, the first one's just called Binti. And I am enjoying that. Um, I need to finish it. But the whole, I don't know. I have, I, I would not vote for that third novella because that's just not, um, to me, you haven't done your job as a writer 
if you can't ground your reader in the story. I mean, it would not have taken that much for her to just explain a few things, explain some terms. I find the um, the first story, I understand why people thought it was so wonderful because it really is a different take on things. But, you know, it's a science fiction story with, and it's a novella, so it moves very fast. And it's with a woman who is um, part of a, African subgroup among, you know, and I think it's still kind of alternate world too. So I'm not sure if the, most of the names aren't familiar to me and it's not, I'm not sure if it's because it's some of them are African words I've looked up, but I think others are like African words that she's adapted or made up for her alternate world. And then it's in space with alien races and a magical system. And so there's a lot of levels to this story. And she's a deft writer, and she's done a lovely job. But that's a lot to put into a novella. And by the time you get to your third novella, um, boy, there's a lot to ground people in. And, and I don't think it worked. So, so there you have it. There's my breakdown, my reviews of stuff. Um, I am working on the new Shiny pretty excited about it. I think it's going well. I have a lot of layering to do on just world details, but I think that this is, I think it's going to go pretty well. We'll see. I'm excited. And I've been doing fun things like scheduling stuff for RWA in July, getting to have lunch with editor Jenny and agent Sarah. That'll be fun and drinks and all sorts of things with other people. I, I'd love having my editor and my agent take me out to lunch. That's one of my favorite perks. <laughs> so it's, I just feel so fancy. You know, and we'll be in New York, so I get taken out to lunch in New York. And it's uh, that's like one of those, uh, when I talk about like the montage of the writer's life, to me that's like one of those scenes where you're sitting in the restaurant with your agent and editor and being fancy. Although I noticed that the place that Jenny picked, I think they don't serve wine, which, you know, she's not a um, high up editor yet. So she probably is on a budget. So that's fine. I don't, I, that's one of the dangers for me at conferences is when I start drinking in the middle of the day anyway. So just as well not to have the temptation. And then for San Diego Comic Con, um, the fantabulous Grace Draven is going to come with me. And she is going to be my guest for the Comic-Con. And we'll spend a few days together. And I'm really excited about that. We haven't seen each other for a while. And she needs a break. And so I think it'll be just good for her to get away and not have to think about stuff for a while. She's kind of burned out. She really has put in some massive efforts to turn in these books. So, yeah, I think that's going to be lovely. So, oh, and then tomorrow, uh, Sage Walker and Jim Sorensen, my buddies, are coming up from Albuquerque, and they're going to have brunch with me. I'm going to fix brunch for them, and we're going to sit in the Great Barber. So hopefully the smoke will have cleared out by then. It's supposed to have. I've been watching it, and it's supposed to clear out tonight. That's one thing about high winds is that at least they blow all the stuff away. So... It, it worked out fine this week for me to, I worked on Sunday. I didn't work a lot on Sunday, but I was still sort of ramping up on that story. And I think I will work this Sunday 
and then take off a day sometime during the week to go out with David. Um, that was nice. That worked out well. So I hope you all have a wonderful weekend. And yeah, and I will um, we'll talk to you on Monday. I don't have anything else to say. Take care. Bye-bye.